It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. today is CEO Russ Minard. Russ joined Old World Spices in 1993 and has held many positions over that time, including leadership roles in the manufacturing, operations, accounting, and information technology departments, becoming chief executive officer today. He has extensive experience in building and leading high-performance teams and has developed and cultivated a family-style corporate culture. Russ holds a Bachelor of Business Administration from the University of Missouri and an MBA from Rockhorse University. Russ Meinhardt, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brant. Great to have you here today. Well, we like to start, you know, kind of talking about the early years, you know, where you grew up, uh, what was your family life like? Uh, tell us a little bit about that uh, at the beginning of your journey. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up on a uh, farm in Missouri. Um, you know, the, the days started, you know, early, you know, <laughs> seven days. Yeah, seven, you know, you know, it was seven days a week. Um, you know, the time was uh, when it was difficult for, you know, farmers. And so, you know, it, my parents instilled a you know, strong sense of ethics with me, you know, hard work. Uh, but eventually they provide me a, an opportunity to discover what I eventually wanted to do. Did you have those morning chores before going to school? And what time actually did you wake up most days? About five thirty in the morning. And yeah, the, yeah, the chores <laughs> had to get done before you went to to school. Yeah. And I always reflect on if even Christmas Day, you'd have to get up and you're like, sure, no, no presents got opened until uh, the chores. The chickens were, done. were fed, the cows <laughs> yeah. were milked. What, yeah. what what types of uh, chores did you have in the morning? Uh, yeah, it was livestock, so we were feeding the, feeding the animals, making sure they had water, and you know, and then it was uh, uh, row crops. We did you know uh, seasons kind of you know came and went, so the 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 things changed that you had to uh, get done for that. Then kind of came in, had a hearty breakfast and off to school. Yeah. Yeah. Was there chores as well when you got home afterwards? Was that part of your daily discipline? Yep. Yep. It definitely was. It was uh, kind of uh, finishing up the day and, and taking care of the, the livestock again. And then you were kind of back in, in, uh, in the house for supper time. Yeah. Tell me about your parents. Were they generational farmers? Had something been in the family for a number of years? Yeah, my uh, dad uh, had taken over the farm from his father, and um, so yeah, my my mom worked on the farm. Uh, all my siblings worked on the farm as well, and so it was just uh, one of the things that was expected. How many brothers and sisters? I've got uh, brother and two sisters. Brother and two sisters, and and I suppose all of you are up at five thirty. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> there, there's probably a pretty big generational gap between all of my siblings. And so Is that right? uh, there was only about one. I don't know if my parents you know, planned it this way, but there was always one of us on the farm at kind of an, uh, you know, a working age, if you want to call it that. Right, right. And your dad said took over the family farm. Was that several generations back? Had they been farmers for a number of years and, uh, you know, immigrants before that? What was the, what was the generational heritage? Yeah, you know, Im- immigrated uh, uh, from, from Europe and then uh, just your kind parents of- Your did, or was it grandparents? Grandparents. Grandparents, yeah. Great-grandparents yeah. great, yeah. great grandparents great-grandparents, immigrated, right. yeah, great-grandparents. So then, yeah, my, my dad's dad, you know, worked the farm as well. Um, and then my dad kind of expanded it. We took over some additional land um, and did some, some uh, cash, uh, cash crops as well. And mom and dad, did they have a university degree? Were you the first to do so in your family? I was the first to do so in my family. My, my brother went uh, uh, into the Navy. Uh, my sister um, uh, got married. Um, and then my other sister... She had gone off and done some, like a technical school, uh, but I was really the first one to have, you know, the big university degree. So mom and dad had a pretty big influence in your life. Uh, Tell me about some of those early lessons, particularly with the daily chores and, you know, the responsibility of uh, taking care of a farm. Um, You know, it was just... it was just expected, you know, and, and that's where I go back. <laughs> this to, is what you, know, you did, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, you know, it, there wasn't a, you know, another option at that point. And so they, they instilled a lot of, you know, it's, it's just, this is what needs to be done. And so now, as I look back at that right now, it's like, you know, there's a, uh, just a sense for getting up every day. And it's just like, this is the stuff that's got to get done. It's kind of accountability, isn't it? It sounds like you learned that at a very young age. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those were the responsibilities. Hey, if the, the chickens don't get fed or the cows don't get milked or the horses don't get washed down, no one else is going to do it. So you've got to step up. Yeah, exactly. Was school uh, a struggle for you? Were you a good student? Uh, kind of how did you fall on the spectrum uh, there? Uh, school came rather easy to me. Uh-huh. I, I just had a sense for, you know, I guess I could recall facts and figures and, and um, some of those things. Um, but uh, I really didn't learn how to, uh, to study or, you know, really how to learn information until I actually got to college. Right, right. Was it uh, a small school? Was this a small farm community, kind of a K-12, K through 12, you know, type of schoolhouse that we have the image of? Or was it a, in a more of a metro area you grew up in? It was a small, it was a small town, uh, kind of uh, uh, county school. So it was rather, you know big for that small town, but, um, still a real, uh, really rural area. And then pretty much the same school location from K through 12, or did they have different middle and high schools there? Yeah. Elementary and uh, high school. So they had a, a junior high and high school were combined at that time. And uh, what about outside of class? You know, was there time for sports, music, theater, anything else other than obviously responsibilities and accountabilities on the farm? Yeah, so s- small school, so opportunities were for extracurricular were limited. Um, a little bit of you know student government, uh, a lot of sports, uh, but then also in the community there was uh, 4-H, um, and then Future Farmers of America, um, and then um, you know I I developed kind of early a passion for computers. It was kind of that time and and age where computers were really new, um, and so I kind of got into a passion for computer programming. 
was this in the eighties or so? When, when did you kind of get yep. Uh, yep. started yeah, on that? Yeah. Early eighties to, to late eighties. Yeah. Did you actually own a computer or was it something that you had to borrow or use at school? I did. I actually, uh, saved up my money and bought my own computer. And, uh, that was one of the things I think that my parents instilled in me is like, if, if you want something, you have to figure out a way to, to right. get it yourself. And right. so, you know, save my money and, and bought the computer, taught myself, you know, some programming and, you know, uh, my parents always thought it was for games, but I was like, you know, I was learning <laughs> some, some, some additional skills as well. What was that first computer? It was a Commodore 64. All right. That's going way back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you obviously were doing some outside work as it related to, uh, you know, doing some savings or were you paid for your farm work or were there other entrepreneurial types of things that you did when you were younger? I guess you could call it paid. <laughs> <laughs> they gave you room and board, right? And then the basics, what, 25 cents an hour after that or something, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and this is a little bit interesting. Um, my my dad, when I was about 10 years old, my dad sat me down and he said, okay, um, he, I'm going to give you, uh, it was a, um, uh, we, we raised a lot of hogs. And so he said, this is going to be your, your hog. And so we're going to, uh, as it, you know, uh, has, has additional livestock, we're going to, you know, that's what's going to pay for your college. Wow. And, and it did, it really, you know, it season after season, I now, you know, then I had one and then it turned into, you know, six and then it turned into 12. And so wow. it became a, a good revenue stream for me to build up that money to go off and, and pay for Very my college. Interesting. So, so basically breeding of the hogs and then selling them to market was how you earned your extra spending money. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and that's I wouldn't cool. call it spending money because my dad would never let me spend it. <laughs> <laughs> it was set aside money, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there was. Well, how did uh, you there... afford the Commodore? I mean, you had to have some, you know, change lying around to to get that. So how I did that was I would go around and um, and sell stuff to my neighbors. Uh, okay. You know, catalogs. You know, everything from wrapping paper to fruit. And so I would just, my neighbors just probably hated me because I'd show up and I'm like, you want to buy, I'm you know, sure, I'm sure they admired your entrepreneurial activities. Oh, it was that's greeting great. cards. It was just anything that I could sell out of a magazine. So that was, that was kind of how I built up the initial money. And then my dad was, he, he probably got calls from my neighbors and like, stop staying your son over here. <laughs> Give your kids a few uh, bucks. Yeah. And, and, and how old were you when you started doing that door to door sales? Uh, I was probably eight uh, good for you 12 years wow. old something like that yeah so that was kind of the equivalent of the paper route which you probably didn't have a whole lot of need for given you know the exactly. distances between exactly. everyone else yeah exactly cool. mistletoe at christmas time or uh greeting cards etc cool and and did you do that or continue to do that all the way through high school or is that more of an elementary and a middle school activity yeah that was more elementary and, and middle school and then the farm became very uh, heavy from a workload standpoint so i didn't have have time or, and to do that plus you know other, other activities in school of uh, playing sports what kind of sports did you play uh football and baseball yeah cool and uh, all the way through high school Yep. And you must have traveled, obviously, uh, to different locations. Did you, you know, have an all-state team or kind of competed regionally? What was the competitiveness of your? It, it was regional and 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 district wide. Uh, didn't quite make it to state. And anything else? Any music or theater or anything else for you know other types of uh, pursuits? Art, creativity? Not for me. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. So going to college was a big decision. You know, it doesn't sound like mom or dad did. And was there an expectation that you would take over the farm? And, you know, was there pressure there or was there an encouragement to, you know, get that degree and find your own path? Yeah, it was really, I remember a conversation with my dad when I was 13 years old about, you know, my path and whether I would, you know, whether he would want me to take over the farm and it was an absolute, no, you need to find your own path. This, this, this farm, you know, this, uh, it was right for him. Um, but he said, it may not be right for you. So you need to, you need to find your own path. And so they really, you know, didn't overtly say you need to go to college and, and, you know, kind of shoved it down my throat, but you know, it was kind of implied. Kind of gave you that choice, which is nice. Did you have any thoughts about taking over the farm? Was that something that had interested you at all? Or was that conversation kind of pivotal in making that decision to go on to college? Yeah, that was definitely a pivotal conversation. But I saw my parents struggle so, so much in trying to provide, um, you know, a a decent living. And I was just like, this, you know, isn't necessarily what I want to do for the rest of my life right what happened to that farm did one of your sisters take it over did they sell it we sold it um my my dad came in in ill health and and so he had kind of laid out his plan for um for selling it and so we uh we eventually sold that so you went to college looks like you went locally from what i can tell i'm not familiar with the university but was it uh uh not too far away from home you know what were your what were kind of your the selection or selection criteria for where you uh, needed to go or wanted to go it was about three to four hours away and um it was relatively easy decision for me um i i applied I, you know do all the th- you know act and the testing and everything I applied uh, very early. I had actually been accepted um, within a month of my senior year starting. And so I was kind of skating through my senior year knowing, hey, I'm going to, you know, University of Missouri. And so you were selected and it was a done deal. Yeah. Early decision, I guess, or whatever it's called or what, yes. what it was called then. Terrific. Early and acceptance. Then, yeah. Early acceptance. And, and how did you pick a major? You know, how did you decide what you wanted to study? Um, so the, you know, the computer, uh, programming yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to be computer science. You right. know, this is, you know, going to be, you know, what I'm going to do. You so kept that was, that up as a hobby through high school, I presume. And yeah, yeah. Did and the Commodore so, you know, 64 get upgraded at some point in time? Uh, well, when I went to the university, it did because <laughs> yeah. then they were on mainframes. Right, so. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, gosh, I remember doing Fortran cards. That's how old I am with regards to when I first computer science class. Oh my goodness. Yep. So, yep. uh, continue that as a field of study then in undergrad. No, what I found when, once I got to, to the university, all of a sudden there was this whole other world of opportunities out there. And what I felt was the computer science, even though I loved it, it was too constricting for me. My, uh, my passions and what I wanted to do was much broader in range. So I transferred over to the, uh, business school. And, um, I also found that, you know, cause the, the majors were finance, accounting, marketing, and management. And I was like, I don't feel like I want to be stuck in one of those disciplines. So they had a, what was called a general management degree. 
And so I went, or a general business degree. And so I went and took their, it was very, it was a very small program. I actually had to get the dean's approval to be uh, selected into it. And um, so that's the direction I went. I just went and got a general business degree. So I was taking all the accounting classes, finance, marketing, and management classes, but I wasn't, you know, taking them so deep. So I didn't have a real deep knowledge, but I had a very broad knowledge of, of all the business uh, acumens. Russ, you mentioned about your passion and, you know, what you wanted to go and what direction it was. Tell us a little bit about that in those early days of college. I didn't know. Once, once I, I got exposed to this larger world and all these opportunities out there, I was like, well, I don't know necessarily know what I want to do now. Um, I, you know, knew it was in business. I really liked that aspect of it. Um, I had a professor, um, who had, um, some great real world experience. And so he would always share, you know, these, these stories. And I really liked that aspect of it. And it was about, you know, he came out of the furniture world. So he talked about, you know, how furniture gets made, how it gets shipped, how, you know, how you sell, uh, these types of things. And so I really liked that aspect of it. So I knew, you know, that was kind of what drew me into uh, kind of manufacturing and business, uh, the business world. Was it the stories that he told about his own experience or, uh, you know, was he more of a pure academic? What were, what were some of those yeah, things? That... It, was, it was, it was less academic. Right. Um, right. And, and that's what really appealed to me. Real world. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, any work during college, I'm sure you had to, you know, help uh, subsidize costs and so forth, or was it returning to the farm on the weekends and breaks and so forth? What, you know, what, what did you do from an outside job standpoint while you were in college, if anything? Yeah, I worked as a bookkeeper oh. um, for, for a couple of years. Uh, first couple of years, I was lucky the first couple of years, uh, I just worked off my savings. And then as, uh, uh, as the uh, years started to <laughs> To, to gain on me, I, uh, I had to take a part-time job. Yeah. Right. And then, and then you did that, but it was right in, uh, right at the university campus there or yeah, somewhere nearby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So first job out of college, what was that? Um, I worked retail for a department store. Yeah. Good experience. Yeah. What were some of the lessons you got from that assignment? Uh, a lot of bad lessons. <laughs> Sometimes those are the best kinds. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had a, uh, I had a couple bad bosses that just didn't, you know, they would uh, expect you to know what you were supposed to do. And so they didn't really mentor you at all. And then when things weren't done exactly how they want, how you thought they wanted them done, they would get, you know, irritated. And, and so it was just a, as I look back on it, I was like, you know, that's not the type of mentor or boss or, you know, the relationship that you'd want to have with people that are working. What for were you. some of those early leadership lessons, even from those bad bosses? Sometimes those are some of the ones that stick with you the longest, as I know from my own experience. I think that every situation is a little different mm -hmm. um, and that you need to um, give direction and then, you know, check back with that person. You know, it's not micromanaging, but, you know, kind of check back with that person, make sure that they're progressing uh, at the pace that you feel like they should be. Um, and per, be a, be a resource right. to them. Be a support. Uh, yeah. You, you didn't feel that it was more kind of, Oh, go do this. Not a lot of direction. And then chastising yeah. you when, when it didn't get done the way they thought it should be done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I got uh, the, the story that I remember, I got transferred to a, a new store cause they had multiple department stores in, in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the area. And so I gotten 
transferred to a new store. And so I show up the first day at the new store. Well, my boss is on vacation for two weeks. Hmm. So I'm, I'm standing around for two weeks, you know, <laughs> introducing myself to people and, you know, going, Hey, I'm the, I'm the new guy, <laughs> you know, what can I help with? And so when, you know, eventually he came back, it was just like, Oh, I didn't realize that I was, you know, had a new assistant or whatever it was. And I'm like, so just some of the life lessons that yeah, uh, sure. you look back on now and like, I could have done that a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first time you started managing people, Russ? Yes. Um, and that was a, a learning experience in itself. Um, <laughs> what job was it, that? Um, at the, at the current job that I'm at, I kind of got through thrown into, um, you know, just, uh, you know, Hey, you're, you're a manager now. And I'm like, okay, well that's, that's a whole new, uh, life for me. And so, you know, I, what I had to do is I had to take, um, from what, you know, what, what I was shown on how to manage people. And again, there was some, some bad lessons there, you know, a little bit more, uh, I had a little bit more, or, um, authoritarian, uh, leader at that time. And so I, uh, you know, followed their, uh, their way of leading people and, um, didn't work out so well in some, <laughs> in some situations. Um, now, did you, but again, did you, you start know, as a manager at OWS or did you come in as a individual contributor originally? kind of individual contributor. I, I was brought in to do, you know, build processes. Again, it was around the computers. Uh, and, you know, at that point I was computerized, computerizing invoicing and inventory. And so, uh, again, some of those lessons in managing people, what, what were some of the takeaways perhaps from some of the mistakes you made? I think the, the biggest lesson was, um, a little bit from, you know, trying to find your, um, I always felt like I should be given respect and what I eventually found out is like, well, you have to earn their respect and you have to do that by, you know, showing them, uh, the, the way, uh, giving them some expectations of, you know, you know, what are our goals and, you know, trying to, you know, set a path for them and then letting them discover the, their way to the, to that objective on their own. So key, but, but, but being, but also being kind of there to, you know, stand next to them if something goes wrong yeah. or they need some help. Yeah. Kind of that inverted pyramid, right? You know, you're, you're there to support them. How would you say your leadership style has evolved over time, Russ? I think it has expanded immensely. Um, mm -hmm. I, I look at every situation differently and look at what type of leadership style do I need to utilize for this particular situation? Um, whether it's the, the people that I'm trying to lead or it's the situation that dictates the type of leadership that needs to be, uh, that, that would get us to the best outcome. And so it's kind of learning all those different styles of leadership and saying, well, you know, here I need to be a little bit more directive here. I just need to be a support role. Um, here I just need to, you know, be a bet, maybe a better coach. Um, and so it's just trying to, you know, looking at the situation and going, okay, here's the best uh, model of leadership for, for the situation. We've had an interesting, interesting career in that you've been, what, almost 25 years, I guess, at the same company and coming in at an entry level, you know, individual contributor role and moving through a number of different departments. I was impressed by, you know, all those various experiences. I'm sure um, that helped prepare you for the top slot and, and your job in the corner office. What 
was kind of the influence there? You know, were you raising your hand for those positions? Was there a mentor? Were you being groomed? Tell us a little bit about that journey through those various departments and and various responsibilities. I'm assuming you kind of started in the IT area, right? Or maybe they called it the CS department back then. What what, what was, you know, kind of the uh, original job? And then how did you kind of move through these various departments over that period of time? So we call it, we didn't call them departments, we called them hats. And so we wore lots (laughs) of different hats. And um, so when, you know, as the business was growing, we saw, you know, and, you know, it wasn't intentional. There were, there was just, hey, this needs to get accomplished. And I figured out, you know, you call it raising your hand or you just, you dug in and you got things done and you learned a lot well, let's double along click on the that. way. Were you asked, you know, or were you, or did you volunteer or were you volunteered? How, you know, how did that kind of come up? Because it's, it's, it's unusual, you know, to really have worked in so many different departments over a longer period of time. Were, were you proactive in those roles? Yeah, I would, I was very proactive. So I, we would see the challenge or like, you know, this needs to get accomplished. So we would just, you know, figure out a way to get it done. We would, you know, I'd tap into, um, you know, whether it was a mentor or leader within the organization or outside of the organization, we would network with people of, you know, people that had, um, you know, a, a different sphere of influence and, or, um, you know, knowledge that maybe we didn't have. Um, and so we would, you know, tap into those types of resources as well. But again, with regards to kind of your advancement, um, did you feel you were being groomed or was it really more of a, you know, you were the guy that stepped up and said, you know, no, I'm, I'm happy to go help get this done. Yeah. I'd say there was some grooming, um, you know, kind of, uh, some early conversations of, you know, Hey, we, we feel like we can grow this. Um, you know, my background just from a, uh, you know, kind of just a problem solver in, in general. Um, so I was always kind of the one leading the problem solving and, and kind of getting to a solution. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the people and culture. How, how do you decide if it's time to micromanage folks or, or when it's time to stay out of their sandbox? Um, I always kind of start out staying out of their sandbox. Um, I've, uh, one of the most recent things that I've learned is hire really great people and develop really good teamwork with the people that you hire uh, because they'll get you a lot farther than if it's just a team of one or a team of, or just myself. Um, so I, I really start with staying out of their sandbox, hire really good people and give them the objective and uh, where you want to go and then let them, you know, direct you down that path. Um, but then uh, you just create some type of, um, I'm a big uh uh, process guy. So I'm always got like, well, we're, we're going to do check-ins on Friday or we're going to do check-ins on Monday, or we were going to have a meeting to kind of bring the team together, um, and, and develop kind of a, a framework so that they know, okay, I've got to report back on where we stand with this project or with this customer, um, in this manner. So again, kind of setting that expectation, um, because before, you know, early in the career, it was just like, well, we, um, it was a small team, so we always kind of knew what was going on. But as we've gotten bigger, you've got to set up some frameworks to be able to, you know, for those report backs to come back right, to you. Right. And if um, you saw people that really weren't hitting their objectives or their accountability, is that kind of when you'd come up alongside them? Yeah. Yeah. Or I'd find someone or another resource that them. could help yeah. them along. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Cool. Um, you've seen, obviously, the company culture evolve over that period of time. Tell us a little bit about that. What are your thoughts on a company culture and, and building one? Our company culture, you know, it was it started out as a family company. So that really dictated the culture of the business. But as we've uh, grown over the years, you got more people. Um, you kind of start losing some of that family feel. Um, and, and so you have to be very intentional about holding on to it. And you do that through um, just, uh, you know, inclusive, being inclusive with everybody. And, um, but we, we've also seen that, you know, there's a need for a little bit of corporate culture as well um, in kind of setting up some, some processes, setting up some, some guidelines for people to follow, um, just like having, you know, paid time off or vacation time. Right. Yeah, setting up, setting up, you know, some guidelines for people so they they know where they can play and the things that are outside of of, of those guidelines. And, and how much growth has the company gone through? I mean, when you joined in '93, it was obviously family owned. You know, approximately how much were sales then, and and how big is it now? I, again, I don't need exact numbers, but just trying to get a handle on, you know, the growth during that period of time. Uh, we grew from, we were less than a million dollars in sales and now we're, we're north of $20 million in sales. Awesome. Yeah. So what would you say is kind of unusual or unique about your company culture today? Um, that we've held on to that, that family, family culture. You know, we, we saw it in some of the early days of, of really the, you know, some explosive growth, you know, you kind of get into some chaos and so you've got to, you know, set up some some, some guide rails for people to, you know, Hey, we're, we're just not going to be everything to everybody. And that's probably some of the other things that, that, um, we've found as we've tried to hire people, it was always, well, we'll hire people that are like us so that, you know, we don't have to, you know, uh, kind of fit new people change, into the, into the yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we found that that's probably not, because then you've got the, you know, just kind of, yes, people and everybody's just kind of, you know, head down and, and there's no, no creativity. There's, um, um, there's a more deeper vertical knowledge that you need within the organization to continue to grow. Right. Right. Cool. When you, you know, you obviously done that period of time growing from less than a million to over 20 million today. There's been a lot of people that have been out of that organization, you know, I'm sure now and in your higher level assignments, you've been involved in a lot of the hiring and so forth. When you look for people to join OWS, you know, and you want to make bents on them, what, what, what are you looking for? What are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, you're looking for and people that you invest in? Um, we're looking for passion. You know, do they have, you know, the, the, the mindset that this is what they want to do? Um, you know, we're looking for intelligence. Um, you know, do they have grit when something doesn't go right do they have the perseverance to really kind of push through and figure it out i love that um, and, I love and get grit. through it yeah. <laughs> and i guess there's a little bit of proactiveness in that as well do you look for people who are willing to raise their hand and stand up and take on challenges yeah and and we feel like we're responsible for that a little bit you know trying to set a path for people within the organization and going you know hey well, here's we're going to hire you and we want you to be the the best for that position, but we're also looking for you to kind of, you know, take on some additional responsibilities, maybe additional, um, areas of, of that will become more important as 
we solidify our current business and we continue to grow. How do you interview and hire? I mean, I'm sure you're involved in direct report uh, interviewing. There's probably other, you know, key positions within the organization you might have an opportunity to meet with. But you know what, you know, how do you kind of conduct yourself? What do you think is important in, 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 you know, getting at what it takes to join your company and through the interview process? Yeah. So the interviewing process, I've found that the best thing you can do is understand what you're hiring for. Um, you know, a, a simple job description, but really you, you need to fully understand the job requirements, the roles and the responsibilities and get that right. Um, what we found is the, the worst hires that we've made, we, we didn't spend enough time on the front end going, this is what we need this person to do. Um, and then, you know, I sit down and ask myself questions about the role, what success look like, what obstacles will they, uh, encounter, um, and just kind of, you know, what's that model candidate really look like? Um, and then, you know, once we start getting, you know, we get that and you start bringing people in and start talking to people, it's, you know, that we reinforce uh, that we're hiring for culture fit first. And then, you know, the technical fit is, is second. Um, and then, you know, we, we, tap into some tools to help clarify some gray areas around people because, you know, sitting, you know, looking at resumes and talking to people for, for an hour, it's difficult to understand, um, you know, how do they behave? How do they think? And, and really what interests them? Do you use any, um, diagnostic tools, you know, psychometric, psychographic tests, things like DISC, Myers-Briggs, or, uh, is that not something that you employ at uh, OWS? Yeah, that's one of the tools that we use. Um, we use a, a tool that allows us to match the person's uh, thinking behavior, thinking style, behavior, and interest to the uh, job thinking and thinking style, behavior, and, and interest for the position. Now, we use those quite often, usually when we get to the final candidate stage. But, uh, you know, sometimes those things are extremely important because you have, you know, pretty good candidates that will match up. And it's important to be able to have that fit. Um, if, if you only have a few minutes to interview someone, let, let's say it's obviously not a direct report, that's going to be a more critical hire, but maybe it's reporting into one of your direct reports and you just have a few minutes to work with them. What, what kind of things do you probe for if you just had a couple of, couple of questions to ask them? Well, I always kind of ask the, you know, what was your first job? Because that really tells me, and I usually have to dig because usually it's the you know, first job they had out of college or right, whatever. Right. Um, so I try and dig back in, you know, well, were you? Did the paper route. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I, I really dig at that um, and, and trying to understand, you know, kind of, you know, what's their work yeah, ethic but, like. Right. And then um, I'm usually the one in the room that's asking uh, the least amount of questions. I try and prime, prime everybody to, you know, ask the questions and then I'll try and dig um, and, and dig a deeper as to how and why um, to better understand who the person is and whether they they fit the organization. Well, Russ Meinhardt, you've been very, very generous with your time. We appreciate that. We're just coming up to the end here, but we do always like to ask one last question. And, you know, what kind of career and life advice uh, would you give to someone who has their eyes on the corner office, you know, whether they're in middle management or maybe they're C-suite and close to it, or perhaps even if they're starting their career, you know, looking back uh, and, you know, maybe forward with regards to folks that uh, uh, might, you know, want to get into a role like yours someday. What, what kind of, uh, 
uh, information, what kind of a career advice would you, would you share with them? The first thing I would say is do something you love that you're passionate about and you have a strong interest in. And, um, I've got a, I've got a son that's just coming out of college right now. So I'm telling him these same things. I'm like, you know, do something you love, um, work in teams and, you know, develop social skills that you allow you to get along with others. Um, uh, because that's probably, you know, you, you can have disagreements about things, but you got to be able to come out the other end, come out of that conference room and everybody would be on the same page. Um, so you got to you know, figure out those skills. Um, get involved and not only involvement, but also be engaged. Um, and then how do you define that? Wait, tell us a little bit about that. What do you see as different between involvement and engagement? So you can be, you know, part of a committee, you can be, you know, be on a, uh, a, a team, um, yeah, but, you know, be engaged in it, you know, not only just show up, but, you know, contribute to that, to that group and, um, you know, bring your skill set. Um, uh, because you probably have a different skill set than the next person. Anything else in this day and age, you have to be very persistent, mm. um, and, f- you know, follow up. And, you know, even though you, you may not be hearing back from people, you just have to be persistent, uh, because there's a lot of things going on. Everybody is very busy. And so you almost have to, at some point, make an impassioned plea to people sometimes to, Hey, I would like to, you know, sit down and have a coffee with you and talk to you about, you know, whatever the project that you want to talk to them about. And uh, eventually, if you're persistent enough, um, you'll get that person's attention. Russ, thank you so much. We really appreciate you sharing your journey into the corner office with us today. Brant, appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.